CabanaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to FaceToFaceGames.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Top 8 Magic. I'm Brian David Marshall here with Michael J. Flores. And uh, we've been accused of doing an entire year's worth of podcasts. Three years. Three years worth of podcasts by Alex Ullman in, uh, what, a couple months? I don't know. I can't count that high. (laughs) What is three? (laughs) Three. Three is the amount of podcasts we did last year. I think we did two last year. Not that I would know. I don't know those numbers. Yeah, yeah, no. And we couldn't look it up. (laughs) No, certainly not. (laughs) So, kind of a tumultuous week of magic i'm feeling foolish are you feeling foolish well randy called me out he said like i didn't believe the judges or whatever with uh, oh with a, yeah. a certain a so, certain dq yeah i mean so the book was hurled i mean we've never seen anything like this so i mean they attached a shackle to the book with a cannonball at the end and threw it off the side of the, the boat yeah it's it's kind of you know that, i mean devastating right because you really I mean, just your sort of uh, willingness to try to find some way that this is true. We're cross talking about the Yu Watanabe situation where Yu was accused of cheating at uh, Mythic Championship 2 with Mark Sleeves. We we discussed it a couple of podcasts ago uh, before we had seen the sleeves. Yeah. And then once you had seen the sleeves, obviously. Even once I saw the sleeves, I was just like, you know. I'm sure. I'm sure it could have gone either way. But but but, but no. the book's been thrown at him. He's been kicked out of the MPL. He's been suspended for close to three months. Yeah. Close to three years. How do you get to thirty months instead of thirty-six months? I don't know. Two and a half years, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he was stripped of Hall of Fame status. So uh, which yeah. is crazy. That's. I mean, I've been doing is the Hall the, of Fame the, since the beginning. It's the first time anyone's ever been stripped of Hall of so Fame. So the status. closest thing that happened to it is Tomohara Saito was elected to the Hall but of Fame. never made it he, did, he was never inducted. That's why we always use the term Hall of Fame elect until you're actually inducted, and he got stripped of his status before induction. Yeah. And so, but yeah, we this has never happened before. It's crazy. And uh, it opened up uh, a slot in the Magic Pro League. Uh, also, Jerry Thompson uh, quit the Magic Pro League. Which, uh, you know, sort of mirroring what he did at the World Championship, you know, sort of said, well, I was willing to give them a, a shot to address the things I want them to address uh, and did not feel that they had done so satisfactorily. I, uh, I, I read Jerry's statement last time yep. at Worlds and I read his statement this time and I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I, look, I, 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 I Obviously, Jerry has part of do what he wants to do, and he's absolutely drawing attention to something right. within a certain community. Right. But I guess maybe I'm just so self-interested. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, certainly the transparency issues regarding the MPL, I can understand that. Maybe you want to formulate this a little bit of a from. I think it's possible because I, I actually talked to Craig. Uh, you know, sixteen thousand dollar lightning helix, Craig Jones. You know, he had, he had said some stuff on Facebook I just reached out I hadn't talked to him in a few years yeah and I talked to him earlier this week and he's like look here's some stuff that I think are issues you know a couple of flags and I, I think maybe even me like I said 
you know, I talk to Jerry sometimes. I consider him loosely a friend, you know. I consider Jerry co- a friend. And, and a colleague. Um, and uh, uh, I read his statements and, I, you know, I, who is, what, what can you, you said, what's, what's, the, what's the beef here? Well, I mean, you know, I think a big part of his beef was transparency in the MPL and knowing like how, how to people, get in. How do you get in? How do you stay in? Um, you know, use of time. He talked about the boot camp, you know, maybe not being everything he wanted it to be. Well, he um, said it seemed to be useless relative to what they were trying to do with it, right? right. Because the timing was already too late. Yeah, and then uh, and then he, t- he took another shot at coverage, which I thought was interesting because I'm trying to parse it. And, you know, he was pretty harsh towards coverage in his original statement about Worlds. And then he said, well, you know, we had this better coverage at the Mythic Invitational. And then coverage took a step back for Mythic Championship 2. And I just, I don't understand that statement unless what I think he's talking about about coverage is different from what I think of when he talks about coverage. Because the commentary teams at the Mythic Invitational were, 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 were solid, right? You had Paul Chion and Marshall, who are veterans, both working it. Normally they are paired together. And I consider them to be the best pair to ever commentate uh, Match of Magic. I think they are the best all-time commentary pair. Um, but they were separate. Um, Paul was working with Alias V, who was good, but was obviously doing her first event. And, you know, I, I have no idea, you know, what her ceiling is. But, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was not the most perfect uh, outcome for, for a booth. And then uh, Marshall and Dave Williams worked together in the other half of the booth. And they were good, but Dave obviously also... You know, there's there's a you you've done the booth. The first time you do the booth, it, there's a little bit of uh, catch up to do, like and, and understand it, and to understand your roles and to like and to also vibe with the other person you're in the booth with. I'm not I'm not taking anything away from either of those pairs, but at the Mythic Championship, just this past one, you had Riley and Simon who are wonderful together, uh, and you had Paul and Marshall together. So like and and they're absolutely perfect they have called some of the best games of magic in the history of calling games of magic if you want a textbook for how to call a game of magic watch the yam wing chun match where paulo vito damadorosa wins after yam wing chun just goes to his attack step at a point with this match yeah the match is coverage is dead solid perfect it's unbelievable it should be mandatory viewing for anybody who wants to commentate a match of magic and so like we so, know what my favorite so i don't know what i'm saying is i don't know what how jerry so is jerry saying then that he dislikes rich maria and the interview people or is he saying i don't like magic played on paper because i don't understand what's happening and wizards hasn't put the infrastructure in place to help me or other people parse what's going on on screen on a paper magic and he and the the advance in coverage for mythic invitational is the fact that it was arena magic where you get to really understand everything that's happening so i can just tell you some stuff that i've come up with so as someone who still writes some magic articles certainly does research to make decks play myself etc these are the things that i find to be frustrating with with coverage if it's me, I'm actually going to I'm going to ask Jerry this when I get a chance. If it's me, I don't think that he's necessarily indicting the people who are in the booth calling matches. But that's that's cer- that is certainly the implication. What 
90% of the people or 95% of the people who read that statement are going to take it as. So certainly at Worlds, when he did that, I mean, I could tell you, like, I don't, I literally don't give a fuck if, about what someone says about me. So if I didn't take it personally, and if I did take it personally, I wouldn't have felt anything about it. I feel pretty confident in what I do. I've certainly navigated myself into a role in coverage that I felt most comfortable with. I didn't feel like I was the best person in the booth, so I got myself out really? of the booth. That's You called my second favorite all-time coverage. I, I've, I've had some good ones, but I don't think I was uh, the best booth person, and I navigated myself into a position where I was doing something that I really What's enjoyed. What's funny, Randy is in all three of my top <laughs> favorites. Um, but... Uh, but, you know, I could tell you that at Worlds, the coverage team was, like, devastated. They were devastated. They felt like just, like, they'd been hit by a two-by-four. The, the website is difficult to navigate. Website's terrible. So, but the thing is, coverage isn't just what somebody clicks on Twitch.tv, because I think what a lot of, in Magic, which is different from, like, League of Legends or something, or League of Legends... You have static stuff and people are mostly customizing how their character looks, right? Yeah. So in Magic, what somebody is playing, what the politicking is going on between the teams, that kind of stuff is the interesting thing to many to many consumers of the coverage. And obviously everybody's got something that might be a little bit different, you know, like if you just think that LSV is dreamy to look at. You're gonna have a different. You're gonna have a different angle on watching the coverage than somebody who's just like, look, I really want to see what Sam Black is playing. You know, that guy often has really inventive deck lists, and if you don't show me what Sam Black is playing, instead you show me what some unknown is playing, who I don't care. That's gonna, you know, it's it's the same as a lot of people who are like, if there's not enough fan service in Game of Thrones this season, then Game of Thrones is bad, right? So, I think different people are looking for different stuff, and. Um, I, I would guess that that might be might be a little bit a part of it um, because I find the website to be incredibly difficult to navigate from a coverage standpoint. Sure. It's just like, why do you have to make me work to find the damn deck list? Like, it's so hard to find the deck list. And the, and the thing is, like, the, the fallback is well, it's always the same. I don't. Th- I don't think. I don't think that deck list navigation is what he's talking about. When he's, I don't think he's talking about the website UI. Now, I think he's actually talking about the webcast. But I also know, I have a strong confidence in this from conversations I've had with other people who have talked to him about this specific thing, is that the pullback in Grand Prix coverage well, is, is important to him because I think part of it is the celebration of Magic players as icons or potential celebrities, etc., is a big part of the draw for a large chunk of the players. And if you're removing that at the Grand Prix level, the up-and-comers are not getting any recognition. Sure. That's taking some teeth out of out of Drogon's mouth. I think that that's I think part of it. Um, but yeah, that's a big. And then you know they were they were quickly replaced <laughs> by top professional players. Yeah, I mean uh, the it's a, it's a I mean from another video game, right? So, yeah. A top professional player from... Well, I mean, like, like, so he's someone who's played Magic for a long time, has been number one Mythic on Arena, and, you know, had an incredible finish at the Mythic Invitation. Top four, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, then uh, the other person was Justice Stefan, who was the best uh, 
female player on the Pro Tour in the 2017-2018 season, became the first female Magic player to win a Grand Prix, and also had a top 16 finish so at the Mythic Invitation. From a transparency standpoint, first of all, obviously the decision makers at Wizards of the Coast can choose whoever they like to put yeah. into the MDL, right? Under whatever criteria they like. Right. Right, you know, um, I've gotten to play in a in a you know celebrity bowl match, and so have you. Yeah. Right. So, uh, the that that's fine. I think like I think that from the perspective of somebody who's I, I, is he trying to protect kind of the position of the grinders though, the people who are I trying to make playing magic their profession. So I I don't know. I think he has a vision for what he wants magic to be. It doesn't adhere to that vision, and he's gonna. I mean, I I, th- I think in this case it was MPL specific, like. You know, like that the MPL just was not was replacing these very vital pieces of, of the Pro Tour, of the Pro Tour and very vital piece. Right. Like it is very clear that you have a one for one swap on Grand Prix coverage and MPL coverage. Right. It's pretty clear that that's a one for one swap. Right. We we've lost Grand Prix video coverage. I mean, we'll have some, but not Wizards coverage. Right. It's like Channel Fireballs doing it. And we get MPL coverage. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's certainly some some cause for concern there if you love consuming a full weekend's worth of Grand Prix coverage and suddenly that's replaced with four hours of MPL coverage. Yeah. So, I don't know, I was, I was just even thinking about, like, all the stuff I've, I've thought about writing about magic and what the place of magic in the average person's life is. And I think that Arena has connected something that is different than than Matt Magic Online did, uh, previously, right? Like, I think, like, maybe the center of the average magic player's universe is FNF, right? Is yeah. that still going to be true? I don't know. I think, like, some of this stuff is becoming more achievable because of, I mean, Arena is a universe where any kid can grow up to be president, right? Sure, but you know, the whereas what uh, the F and M was where any magic player could grow up and become a congressperson because there were so many more opportunities. Like, well, F and M was like that's where anybody can show up and become you know mayor of their principality for fifteen sure, minutes, but, you but know, and but, get to the pro tour and right there was this clear path to compete. Um, you know. You know, it was go to F and M. Imagine your Grand I'm just Prix, like the most go. talented magic. Let's say I'm from Porto Alegre, Brazil, but I don't have any money, right? And so I can't travel to events or whatever. But I really am the best player in the world, you know, based on whatever yeah. ceiling potential card criteria you have. And I just jam arena and I've got Brazilian Twitch, you know, on there and people can see how good I am and I'm navigating these difficult matchups. So you're, you're saying in this universe, you think Paulo still grows up to be Paulo? No, I think uh, that a kid who's less advantaged than Paulo can grow up to be Paulo. Because if that person is really that good, Jenner, you know, if that person really grinds to be number one mythic, stays there, shows some people on on Twitch, etc., that I feel like that's the kind of person that could potentially be plucked out of out of a, a global talent pool. Yeah in order to be highlighted in the MPL, and that's just different right. from people who travel a lot to play in Grand Prix. Right. Like I've, always, I've always, for years, 
you know, at least the last eight, ten years been like, at one point I really thought I was going to grind the Star City tour. Like, that was yeah. like, when Steve Saban was working in Star City, he was just like, we're going to pay for you to go to all the events. Like, all the stuff, <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. And like, Tapin was just like, oh, no, no, Pete made his own pro tour. They're, they know, and it's like a work, right? For forever, they just had like whatever AJ and Edgar Flores and and Burton Sheeney were always top eighty every week. They were getting buys every week. You just totally were able to stack the deck, right? Back then, and and and, and in, in some cases, literally. Yeah. No, but seriously, like, <laughs> Drew Levin had a stacked deck when he sat in, in front of, him. and it's not. He wasn't a bad person. That was the system that they were in, right? Like, so. And they said, no, we, they have a, they have a stack. You're going to be invited to all these tournaments that have a better EV than the Pro Tour, all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, wow, this is great. And then it realized over time, like, for this might be, if you really want to devote your life to playing Magic, right, and not doing other things around Magic, writing about Magic, creating content about Magic, educating about Magic, whatever, but you want to, you want to earn your living as a professional slinger of spells, you got to be awfully good in order to blend out your your travel fees and the travel fees are just that's the thing it's not right. the, it's not the tournaments like being plus EV in the tournaments is that's surmountable right. right you can make back your entry fees like that's not the problem right. maybe you can make back your time but if you're like outlaying a thousand dollars a weekend or anything sure. in hotels and airline tickets sure that's the thing that's really really difficult to beat because you know I remember back in the day when Dave Price and Darwin Castle were first trying to be professional magic players and, and both, we're talking about Pro Tour champions with multiple, you know, premier event top eights each. But, like, the worst thing in the world is showing up for work and not getting paid. Right. Right? And, like, that's, you know. And Dave was was in that car playing in a Memphis PTQ and then playing in a St. Louis PTQ uh, the next day. My favorite tournament report of all time. Yeah, but yeah. that was that was the life, you know. And there was so much less in terms of a lucrative lifestyle coming out of it. And so... Um, I can't understand from that perspective. It's frustrating for people who have created a groove where they're like, I'm a tournament magic player. Mike, I talk to people and I, they're not notable players, right? I don't know if they even have a top 16 in a premier event in their lifetime. These guys are in a premier event every weekend. Sure. And it's, I mean, if that's what you love, do what you love, right? I'm just saying like from an, from an expected value standpoint, I don't know how you can afford it. That's right. You know, that, yeah, it's an expensive hobby, right? right. So, yeah, no, it, it, this is definitely a big time of upheaval, right? Like, we don't know what it means to, right? Like, the pro player, the pro club system is fading out, right? So, which was what you used to do to stay qualified for the pro tour, right? You're like, oh, I'm silver. That means yeah. I can do this, this, I was and silver this. for one event. I can be, I'm gold. I get to play in everything. I'm platinum. I get to play in everything and, and can pay. justify doing yeah. it. Um, but that's all going out the window, and that's replaced by the MPL, and the MPL is sort of, it's unclear how you get into the MPL, how you stay in the MPL. Um, I mean, obviously, that, there's still those announcements are coming. Tours, though, right? Like, I think. So there's still Mythic uh, Tabletop, Tabletop Mythic Championships, right? There's, yeah. there, those, are, those are still going on. Those still get qualified for by, from qualifiers. Um, but you don't, that doesn't necessarily give you a clear path to stay on the Pro Tour because if you, you know, win, or if you top, 
150 Mythic Championship 3 or whatever, whatever is in Barcelona. If one Mythic Championship 1, you don't even get to be in the MPL. Right. So, well, actually, Autumn is in the MPL. I'm sorry, Mythic Championship 2. Mythic Championship 2. I apologize. Two. Yes. <laughs> Mythic Championship 1 was a great one to win. Okay. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, Autumn is in by default. <laughs> Right? So, but there's not even spots available for people who are winning the Mythic Championship. So I think that from that perspective, it is, it is dense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what this all means. And I think we've grown accustomed, or if you want to say entitled, to a certain, certain stability around competing, right? Like, you know, you think about the Josh Ravitzes and the, the Gabe Carlton Barneses and you know, the like who were able to continually stay on the pro tour. By working it. By working at it and, and, and qualifying and chaining together a couple of events. And, you know, and it's not clear that that tier of player is going to be as supported as that tier of player has been for the bulk of Magic's competitive history. Well, the tier of player who could stay on the pro tour by dragging together a point at a time at Grand Prix. So that was actually the Rob Doherty. I mean, people. Rob Doherty's a Pro Tour champion, multiple top eights. Good, good chunk of my thought process as an analyst of Magic. Rob Doherty was the best X designer in the world. But Rob Doherty is the first person to say, like, the way that you stay on, get on, stay on the Pro Tour, is by dragging together a point at a time at Grand Prix. Right. You need twenty. You know, need twenty points or whatever. You get them at Grand Prix, which doesn't exist anymore. Right. So. Um, My route to the Pro Tour was playing a couple of store-level team events and be qualified for team Pro Tours on rating. High five. <laughs> I, I resemble one of those, one of those uh, invitations. Uh, and then, as I recall, you did coverage that time and I didn't, right? What's that? That last, when we were Dave Price Fan Club. We, we promptly O2'd. Oh, yeah. And then you switched it and then I didn't cover. Right, I covered. Why didn't I cover? I don't know. I used to be on the coverage team. Yeah. Was that oh. before or after? Maybe that was before I was That was before team. you were on the coverage team. That okay, was 2002, means... 2003. Okay. Because I was on the coverage team in yeah. 2004 to 2006 yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. I had started writing for the website yeah. and they asked me to do some coverage. Do you know how I started with coverage? I had this deck that I thought was really good. So I convinced my wife to let me fly to Columbus to play in, an, in a last chance qualifier. I was a maniac like these morons. That's how I understand that the finances don't make sense. So she's just like, do what you love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Follow your bliss. God bless her. I mean, I almost qualified. It was like yeah. an itch for qualifying. Um, but, but what I had done ahead of time was I knew that Kibler was going to show up for the Pro Tour, collect his Pro Points, and then leave because he had a LARPing event. Oh. He had the LARP, right? Live action role playing. So I called up Randy and I said, Randy, Brian's not going to be there for Sunday. Give me his spot. Give me a spot on Sunday. I'm fucking charming, right? <laughs> and he's just like, you're crazy. I'm not going to give you a spot on Sunday. Lo and behold, they gave me a spot on Sunday. <laughs> he's just, I didn't sign a contract or anything. So they were, I'm like, they're like, we don't have you under contract or anything. I'm like, I don't care. I was a student for the kicks. I just wanted something to do. So I got paid a box. <laughs> wow. I got paid a box. It's probably still unopened in order to do that. And then I got paper in the in the mail and they were like, your numbers were fantastic. We would like you to be on Sundays from now on. But I was like, I wanted to be a professional magic player, right? So like I didn't, they didn't have like the LSV thing back then. 
And one day, Greg was just like, we can't keep flying you to Pro Tours that you play the first day or two and then, you know, work if you don't do well, right? Yeah. And then he's just like, what about this one? And I'm like, I'm qualified for this one. I'll play. I think that might have been a mistake in my fork decision making because like, I just, I just wanted to play and I, you know, I think, no, that was like my, that was like a bad choice. Did you do coverage in Charleston and Sunday? That was a uh, Halapumba. Yeah, I don't remember if I did. No, I don't think so because that's my first event was Nagoya. No, no it's Charles. It's fine. It's like uh, Slifer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you who's didn't, I, You didn't do that one. I don't remember. That was the last one they asked me to do, right? But I was qualified, and I was just like, Oh, I probably did it then. You must have done it then, yeah. Yeah. Did you? Had you already skipped the Japan one? Yeah, I skipped Japan. Oh, then I did it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't remember. But I, I, so I did Atlanta, and then I went back and I did LA. I did Hawaii and LA, and then they're like, they're like, you know, because I had been writing about teams so much. I was like, I was so locked into team. You remember? I was just yeah. like, every week I was like, team, team. I was like. People were, we were doing top eight magic. Yeah. People were like emailing us every week. Oh my God, I just did whatever Mike said and we qualified. You remember like, just listen, that was the best listeners yeah, that was, were like. that was the Ravnica, yeah. uh, Ravnica so block construction. They were excited, they're like, oh man, it's gonna be team. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's team, I'm qualified. <laughs> and then they're like, well, would you work on Sunday? I'm like, I'm playing on Sunday. I've never been this good at magic in you, my life. You came close. I mean, I mean, individual pro tour, I would have won, right? Yeah. Was I like X and three in the Swiss? Yeah. My t go figure. My teammates did not <laughs> did not hold up the bargain, but uh, that's ancient history at this point. Yeah, it really is, right? That yeah. was like two thousand. That's thirteen years ago. Yeah, whatever. More than ten years ago, but um, that was fun. It was fun times, man. But I don't think I could do it. Like you did it fifty weeks a year or something. Right? I mean, not that many. I did it quite a, quite a I did quite a bit of it. I about seven or eight years. I definitely ago. enjoyed not doing it. About seven or eight years ago, I did a stretch where I did a lot of Star City events. Yeah. Where um, I was just like, I don't know, it's it just crazy. Like, most people who are doing this as part of their, if that's, you know, that was your primary thing, right? I was just like doing all this on top of like kids and having a job. It was impossible psychically. that on top of being a chief creative officer for a game company. What are you talking about? It was a full-time thing. I thought you were doing that either or. No. I thought you gave it up for a year while you were doing that. No. You did it at the same time? I did it at the same time. I'm telling you, I, I did it at the same time. I couldn't it do it. It was brutal. I could not do it. Like it's, the, one of the, it's, one of the re, it's actually one of the reasons I very deliberately kind of re retired when I got this job yeah. was because I was like, I tried to do both last time. I was offered to do both this time. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is this is just not good for my soul. One of the last events I did, I, it was the first one I think Patrick Sullivan did actually. So I was actually trying to get Evan for years. I was like, me and Patrick Sullivan is the best team. Trust me, it's gonna be. Obviously, we did great numbers, whatever. But it was in Vegas. But I like went, you know, worked, and I just partied in Vegas. So the fact that I even made it up for like 8 a.m. call on Sunday morning, and like worked the day, I don't know how I did it. And I was still alive. It was like, I literally sneaked out in the middle of the night after, we went out on Saturday, I sneaked out in the middle of the night, came back, and then, you know, worked an hour yeah. later. But let's try, to, let's try to swing this around back to the original thread that we started on this, because the, the, we didn't even get to the end of like all the news from this week. Oh, what? this week, yeah. I mean, so, um, so on top of everything else, so, you know, these two, two players uh, replaced Jerry and Yuya. Um, 
And uh, they also announced that there's going to be at the Arena Mythic Championships that in with an eye towards um, representation that there were going to be 16 discretionary slots at every Arena Mythic Championship, which has been met with, I would say, mixed feelings from the Magic community. How about like post 40 people of color? Is that, is, is that in the inclusion? I'm just <laughs> wondering. Because, you know, if I could do a few pull-ups, I think I could get a Ninja Warrior that way. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, I mean, there, there's some reaction. Obviously, you know, some, you know, I, you know, some talk about, you know, women, you know, women who don't get the same opportunities to stick on the Pro Tour that men have for a lot of different reasons that include... Well, you know, you just don't have the same access to uh, an all-male testing house. You might not feel comfortable being in an all-male testing house. Oh, wow, yeah. Right? Like, there's a lot of different... But the reaction from a number of female Magic players was, well, I don't want to be a token player. I, w- I mean, I've been working at this, and I want to earn this. So. I've taken my token invitations happily. Yeah, well, I mean, no, one, no one's going to turn one down, but at the same time... People, so it, it's it's been interesting to see uh, a couple of people posted, you know, that they felt that this undermined the meritocracy of magic, right? That magic has just always been, right? I always tell the story about at neutral ground and somewhere in the early, you know, mid nineties, it's like Ice Age sealed deck and Carrie Newberger, who is a very successful New York lawyer, is like consulting, you know, high school student. Stephen O'Mahony Schwartz <laughs> on how to build his Ice Age Shield deck, right? Yeah. And and to me, that's one of the things that I've always loved about Magic, right? Like that it's this great leveler, right? That you know. But do you think that pro level Magic has really historically been a meritocracy? Well, and this that's this is I the question. This is certainly the question. I mean, it's certainly um, there are certainly a number of different factors that are, are not just about. I think that some of the top players of the people within that sort of blast radius of the game certainly get the opportunity to rise to the top. I think of the players who are sort of in the system, you do see generally see the best players rise to the top, and it's a meritocracy that way. But I, I don't that believe that the I don't believe that at its entry level it is. I think that at the top level, it's, it, it always has been ish. Yeah, no, yeah, ish, but, I mean, look, look, there's always been some variance in Magic that no, is no, going to interfere mean, like, with that. Who gets in, but, you know, stuff like that. Sure. You know, it, there's always been look-the-other-way stuff. Right. You know, from the first season of Magic. Right. And I think, like, I think that's fine. I actually think they should have done it more, and then people would have had a different outlook at it. And I think that... I, I personally abhor the grinding mindset, right? Like the mindset that like we just grind at this thing and, and eke out small small amounts of value, and you add that up, and that that's a magic career. I find that to be woefully destructive, and I think that it it you take these incredibly intelligent and talented people, you literally like shave off all the all the things that they could they could have done better, you know? Because like it just creates a bad system. I think that like the idea of celebrating superstars and creating creating mythology around superstars and like I think that the game is really really well served when there's icons like 
Finkel, Kibler, LSV, Kai, um, Bob Maher, Yellow Hat, like guy like even Fujita, people who have specific attributes, not guys who are like their attribute is he makes generally speaking a higher percentage of the right play even when compared with other elite players. That's not good enough for me, right? Like the the that's not that the, the so you're you're saying that Paulo Seth Manfield, um, uh, you know, are not. I'll give you a contrast from real life, so uh, from a real life system like this. Imagine was going in the certain Mike Long is a really great example, right? When, sure. When they did the Mike Long experiment in the early 2000s, uh, there was a time when the World Wrestling Federation thought that their, which is now WWE, right? Was World Wrestling Federation at the time thought that their business in the United States was going to be tremendously embattled, and that was the rise of MMA, right? So. The thinking was that there was these huge buys for MMA um, pay-per-views and that why would anyone watch fake fighting when they could watch real fighting? And for a while, MMA was successfully able to build some of these superstars. In the early days, like Hoist Gracie, Matt Hughes, BJ Penn, guys on that. The problem is, as it became more and more of a meritocracy, you couldn't even be in a situation where a guy would win three matches in pay-per-view in a row. Sure. And what that ended up doing, it says, there's, there's not a question about whether or not there's a meritocracy here, because clearly that's what's happening. Somebody else who you don't know his name has trained really hard and he's better that day, right? In that match. Right. The problem is, is if your objective is to use it as a marketing event or to get a bunch of people to watch it, you now have a problem. And so Vince McMahon, who's the chairman and owner of the World Wrestling Entertainment, was just like, that's actually their problem. They, they don't control who the stars are. And, right. so, and so he's been incredibly successful in some cases importing anime stars. Right. Uh, like Ronda Rousey or Brock Lesnar and turning them into the most bankable stars. Hang on. I don't know what I was saying. Anyway, I was saying, like, uh, so what Vince McMahon figured out was that you have to be able to control who the stars are. In, in effect, you have to be able to control who wins, right? And if you can't control who wins, you can't control who the stars are, right? And that's actually part of the problem. If it's too, merit- if it's too much meritocracy, you annihilate the legend. What you actually want, you really want, I think, these runs that Kai and John were able to... Do you remember John's run? His second Hall of Fame run? Yeah. Became just unbeatable. Kai coming back and then top-aiding that, that, that pro tour in Amsterdam. Right? That's what people want to see. That's what people want sure. to cheer for. And when you're looking at it from the perspective of the 200 or so people who are actually the 200 best grinders in the world or whatever, that's not a good story. If you look at it from the perspective of the 8 million people who are potentially in the pool watching, that's the only story. I think. Right. right. I actually. So, so, you're, so you're saying that you you feel like the role of the MPL is to create a smaller pool of people that you become very familiar with and excited about when they succeed because it's easier to have to maintain 32 narratives as opposed to constantly panning for narratives in new people like. Who is Eli Loveman? I don't know. Quick, somebody find out something about Eli. I mean, like, there are so many... 
there's... Which is no, not to take anything no, away no, from no, his no. accomplishment. I just mean nobody knew who he was, and there's not... Random... No, no one's gonna No one's gonna go look on Twitter and go, unless you know him, go, oh, Eli Loveman's in the top eight, let me tune in. Random people winning the Pro Tour, especially when they make misplays on camera, is a disaster for the for the narrative, right? It's literally a disaster, right? It, it Among other things, it utterly undermines the, the concept of meritocracy and magic, right? Like when, do you remember when? I, I, I mean, I disagree. I disagree with that. Look, the, the reality is every single magic player has made a terrible mistake. Of course. And made terrible mistakes on camera. But the point- it, It's just, that just comes with the game. But the I don't point believe of this is to you make can- people like, this is supposed to be a god of magic. I'm, sure. Don't compare them to me. I'm a mortal of magic. This is a god of magic. The god of magic should not have done that in that spot on camera while I'm watching on Sunday afternoon. Sure. That is what I'm saying. But, I'm not but, talk- they, but they have historically. Forget about them being an actual human being. That's, that's my whole point, right? right? So if you, if you have some of these human beings, the kind of human being I like is a Conley Woods or a Brad Nelson. They come up, they, they, they take a nibble, they take a chink out, Right, then they take another chink out, and they got a hell of a story once you peel back, right? There are, there are many players who have come up and taken a bite, right? But there are not many players who've taken a bite like Conley Woods. How many freak, How many stories have you and I made up about Conley Woods, right? Just Conley Woods or Brad Nelson, right? Sure. Like these, these are the kind, or even like Pierre Canali, okay? Pierre Canali, I'm fine with, right? But like... When every event is won by an unknown. Pierre Canali, who came out of nowhere with his deck built by relative unknowns, Guillaume Matignon and <laughs> Guillaume <laughs> And he played pretty badly in the top. Yeah, but you know what? I, I, I always... I but Canali vindicated himself so much over the rest of the yeah. next couple of years. By, by the way, just like... Everyone always gives people like a lot of crap for playing badly on... So I don't think... If you've never, A, been on camera playing Magic... Yeah. Like, A, that's already like a stressor, right? It's like, it is very stressful to play Magic on camera and very different and alien than playing Magic normally. Like, once you realize, like, everyone's looking over your shoulder, like, the entire, you know, Magic viewing community is looking over your shoulder at your play, you you just don't play Magic with the same fluidity that you play when you have no one to answer to but yourself or maybe two friends over your shoulder, right? I I did this thing where I, I just looked at I mean, not, not Pro Tour, right? I had some camera matches in the... I played in two Pro Tours in the last couple of years. I won my camera. And I was, you know, against very good players. Awesome. It was good. But I went back and, like I said, a few years ago, I was actually trying to, like, trying to make a run on the Star City Tour, right? And I had very good day ones a bunch of times, and I lost every single win in and on camera that I had. And I had a bunch. And I went back and I watched them. I was just like, I did not play this match badly. I just... Like, I'm just not, you know... It's coming up tails sure, when I'm I mean, on camera, yeah, yeah, and there's, what, what am I supposed to, you know? That it, is going to happen, it too. It crushes you, you know. But If it just happened the previous round, it wouldn't have been on camera. But also me. the thing to remember is that someone playing on Sunday has already played a entire weekend of Magic by the time they get to Sunday, played some of the most stressful Magic of their life for the last few rounds on Saturday, right? Like some of the most harrowing, stressful Magic of their life. And then unless they're in a position where they have, like, superstar team behind them possibly stayed up till one in the morning or two in the morning testing and then let's be honest did not get a minute of sleep i remember let's be honest when uh when lsv top eighted was it 
Yokohama, the one that that uh, the one with ga- with with the, the seats the in the final one. He so said he just looked. He just looked at his opponent's top eight deck list. He's like, he can't beat me, and went to sleep. <laughs> just like he's just looking. I think Marsh Casualties is the card he's looking for. He's like, yeah. he doesn't have Marsh Casualties. Uh, this one's a three zero. <laughs> went to sleep. He's like, I don't know. If I'm going to play the top four, but I know I've got the top eight. <laughs> Uh, he's like, and you know, Randy said the same thing. He's like, you know, no amount of testing beats a good night's sleep. The thing I would say but, is, but but the the reality is, Luis had been there a few times before at that point, and yeah. you know, could I mean, maybe you're talking about arguably the best player. Of yeah, all time, could right? could could just, you know, like I, I trust me, you are going to have a hard time going to sleep if you make your first top. To eight. clarify my point, yeah. I don't think I'm really disagreeing with you. I'm saying, like, if you want to look at it from an empathetic standpoint and say, like, well, look at this from the poor perspective of this guy who made the biggest mistake of his life on camera just now and is going to have to remember this in video over and over. I don't disagree with what you're saying. Of course, we are all mortal, etc. I am talking about from the perspective of creating and cultivating an audience. That is not the way that you want the narrative to flow. Right? Sure. You want the same thing to happen at the end of every episode, which is that our powers combine... <laughs> You form the feet, I form the head, the blazing sword comes out, and then, you know, we're kissing princesses for the last five minutes. That's how you want every story to end, right? How you get to that thing could be different each time. Sure. But like, but like you don't want it to be like, oh, the three-legged dwarf <laughs> fell out of the sky, killed his horse. <laughs> Neither of them won as they all drowned in a mudstorm. The third alternate was able to win as a result of default, right? Like, that's not the story. Sure. Right? And I think that part of the problem is when you have 400 players, 250 of which have never played in a pro tour or something, right, coming in, who are all good. Right? Yeah. They're all they're all at a basic level. They're they're all the best player at their store, for sure. For sure, they're all the best. I mean, knowing many of the unknown players, you know, the 90s and 2000s, I knew a lot of the unknown players. You know, with the first one, they were, they were, they were winning, and like, this is like a rando who you're gonna, you, Brian David Marshall, are gonna ranch seventy five percent of the time in a money draft, right? Heck, I just won a pro tour, and the the thing is like, like you said, they're the best player in the store. It just doesn't make for good narrative, right? Right, and I, I feel like constriction of the total number of potential stars helps to helps to do that. Right. Yeah. No, I I I, I, I certainly understand. I'm just we, we're definitely in a transition point and I'll be curious to see I mean maybe this is just great for Star City right maybe this is just a great boon for Star City where their opens just become much more appealing and the players championship becomes much more of a kind of goal for people and then you know and getting to the Pro Tour is something that's awesome and that you can say you did once in your life there are competitive teams who their focus is the Star City Tour sure. not not the yeah. Pro Tour yeah uh, and you know I mean obviously Patrick Sullivan is in his biased, right, because he's a full-time coverage guy on the Star City Tour, but he, said he, he thinks that from an EV standpoint, grinding Star City events is way better than grinding Rampage. Sure, and he, yeah, well, EV, that's different than what we're, you know, talking about, like, just... I mean, totally, yeah, right? Like, yeah. The thing is that, I mean, as someone who's been close many, many times at those little events, I would have I would have gladly foregone whatever I, I, cash I thought you I were. Take. I thought you were going to go down the road of quality of players, and, oh, no, no, and no, no. I was like, and I was getting ready. I was all ready to sort of like, yeah, let's hold off here. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, I'm saying no, like, yeah, I, we're, we're fine. I've been fine. playing in the last three rounds of a Grand Prix a bunch of times. I would have gladly given however much money I was going to potentially win away for, for. They don't give you that option, right? yeah, uh, for the invite. Um, the quality, but I don't know. They're they're, fine. They're really good. 
But I'm just saying, like, the, at the, 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 the quality player at a Pro Tour just still remains. The quality player on camera at a Pro Tour is much better than the quality player on anything in a Grand Prix or a Star City event. Right. Day one players picked out of the aether in either one. And I'm saying, like, all right, you don't pick the table that Ben Stark is at, okay? Right. Because Ben Stark played in the event, right? Yeah. Like, don't pick the table that Ben Stark or, or Sam Black is at. Pick a random table. I don't think that the, the quality of play at the Grand Prix is so much higher oh, than the sure. quality of play at the Star Oh, I think, I think they're actually... I, I think mean, they're both they're very similar. They're, they're, both, they're both largely going to be local population magic players trying their hand at the, this level of play. And early enough in the day, if it's a constructed event, the decks are going to be increasingly horrendous. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Yeah. So, but uh, but yeah, so it's, it's just an interesting an interesting time where people are, are really torn about you know what what meritocracy means and whether you know I like your take about whether or not that's even good for magic right that it that it has to be this um, I'm the best player at you know grinding out these pro tour events whereas you know wizards might just decide that they're rewarding different things and that you know you know that Caleb Durward is someone that they want to reward for streaming magic all the time or that Kenji Igashira is deserving of more opportunities to play at the highest level because he is so popular or that Maria, I mean, for fuck's sake, somebody give Maria and Megan some opportunities to play at this level then because I don't know anybody who's done more for Magic over the last couple of years than Maria and Megan from Magic the Amateuring. I mean, I mean, look, one of the guys from Commander Cast is going to be in the Mulan movie. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, right? Jimmy Wong. So, uh, I don't know. It, so you're saying he's not able to play in that pro tour because he's busy. <laughs> I'm saying, like, it's, I don't think it's fair for you to say, that, you know, in your mind, that they're... Like, a lot of people have done a lot in different ways, sure. right? Well, I, I mean, I just... I mean, Megan and Maria have, like, you know, really changed the dialogue of about competitive magic and have really led the charge on sort of diversity and inclusion in magic. And they're both, you know, just, like sort of kick-ass entertainers and, you know, have really uh, grown the game. Well, so here's the, this is what I'm imagining. What do you want to see? Like, it, just imagine a perfect, a perfectly streamed and commentated match of Magic for entertainment consumption purposes. What do you see on, on the screen? Who do you see on the screen? I mean, it, it, re it really depends on, on what I'm looking I mean, I think you can get that... Um, I think you can get that great magic out of any permutation of players. I don't think it has to be um, John Finkel versus Luis Scott Vargas. Every one of my favorite matches I've ever seen commentated has at least one Hall of Fame on it. Sure. And the thing is, it's Hall of Fame. Right, so let's go, let's go back to that for a second. In dramatic positions. What are your, what are your favorite? What are your, my what are three you, favorites? Yeah, what were your three favorites? Number one, Maher v. Davis, by far. Okay. Uh, and I think that that, in a sense, gave me an overblown idea about how good of a commentator Brian Hacker was because he was <laughs> so good in that one, and he was he was super so mean. But I, that was the model I took. Right? I, I was understand. super mean early in my career yeah, too, yeah, because that's who I knew, right? Number two, uh, I was super mean. Frank Carson Double Bluff, which was you. Yeah, that was my first event. And doing commentary. This was not my first event, but number three was uh, maybe. I think objectively, I might have it higher, but I mean, this is just from a. I'm trying to not be like too overblown. Um, Antoine Ruel against Kenji. Right. I, I mean, I think that's close to the... I mean, it's very high up there in my mind. Right. How well commentated a match. Kenji's going to be playing Magic on camera this weekend, you know. Yeah, I'm he's just saying... In, I'm he's, talking, 
I'm just telling yeah. you, if you need some Kenji, both Kenjis are playing at the box this weekend. Um, okay. So. They're probably going to be busy all day. All right, well, I'm just telling you, man. Uh, but I'm just saying, like, I think that's a very well-commentated match. Like, I don't think $16,000 Lightning Helix is a very good piece of entertainment because I'm just so... I'm so negative, like, the whole time. But Kenji against Antoine is a great piece yeah. of entertainment, right? And and it's, like, two Hall of Famers at the height of their powers. Like, you cannot have this level of a great match to watch if, like, even one of the players is a... Is a I mean, Maher v. Davis is the exception. Yeah. I mean, because Maher is such a personality, yeah. right? But, like, seriously, what a... Chapin versus Nassif has got to be one of your favorite matches of all time. Oh, of course. Of course. It's two Hall of Famers at the height of their powers, playing an amazing deck, playing amazing magic against each other. LSV versus versus Nassif. There's a reason these are the matches that are all coming to my mind, right? My my favorite match to commentate ever, by the way, weirdly, is Jan Moritz Merkel versus Willie Adel in the finals of Kobe. I think that might be my number one favorite. Now that you point, I mean, just like Jan Moritz Merkel basically beat Willie Adel 15-0 when Adel should have won 47-0, right? Is that correct? It's something like that. That is, yeah. So I, I think I, I had an argument with G.H. Weiss where I was basically like, he's just, because there was this trend where I was like all mind game. By the way, Emirates Merkel's playing this weekend in the box too. <laughs> so, wait, this was this. so there was all mind, I was just like, it's all mind game, X percent is mind game. And I was like on this run where like, I was winning a lot of unwinnable matches by mind game. And G.H. Weiss was saying to me, it's not, you totally overrate mind game. Like, it's mostly deck. I mean, you do generally overrate mind game, but... I said, watch this match. <laughs> Three hours later, he calls me. He's just like, sign me up for your newsletter, right? <laughs> that kid had no business winning any one of these games, right? And he worked him. And Willie Adel is a Hall of Famer, yeah. right? That's actually, it might be my favorite. I mean, just the utter ability of one player to smother the other player purely on mind game, it's so, so good. So if you haven't That'll seen the match, never it, happen it was the fi- finals of Grand Prix of Kobe, and, and Yamritz Merkel just kept like, imposing himself into his opponent's table space. Yeah, so that was a big part of it. So. If you if you look at the I, actually there's a section in the official Meisters guide I look, just took screenshots and I was just like look what Merkel does here if you look at their deck lists like Edel has him covered up it, it, if there's a, I think there's a configuration where Edel can't actually lose right if you look at the merits of the deck it was like, limited no mathematical way for Edel to it was lose time, the, spir- yeah. time spiral limited time spiral yeah. draft and Edel found a way to lose just just from like Merkel like shoving hey, no, he, no I wouldn't so what I, rem- I remember you know like the Lost in the Woods decks like I play 41 cards there's a Lost in the Woods right you can't actually lose yeah they don't have it there's a configuration that he has that he can't actually lose but he finds a way right I th- by like I think like a Monvoli Acid Moss or something well I, what, what ends up happening I remember in, in the, at the end is he so <clears throat> Willie Adel is mining incremental card advantage <laughs> Yeah. If you remember that term oh, from earlier, yeah. where he's just got like multiple sapperling makers, right? That just get fungus tokens. And then you remove three fungus tokens, but he's got things that reduce the number of fungus tokens you need to remove and accelerate the number. And he's just making this sort of like. He has all these extra metrics that he's ahead yeah, on. Yeah, he's just all these he's insane. He's got the true shooting percentage. Insane <laughs> army of sapperlings. Um, and it's just like, it really is inevitable that he will win that game if yeah. he just waits enough turns. I and think he, this might be what I'm and, talking and about. And he yeah. waits one turn too few. And I remember, like, I'm like, I think he's short. <laughs> I think he's short. I mean, he probably just wins next turn. But, like, he, he could have waited a turn. And then Yenworth's Merkel unmorphs Brian Elemental. High five. <laughs>
That's Brian Elemental. And Brian keeps, Elemental or no? Yeah, and keeps and just steals the and steals it. It's it's insane. It was one of my favorite matches to ever commentate on, um, on a lot of different levels. But that's that's neither here nor there. But he'll be playing in the box this weekend too. That's Brian Elemental. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that was super cool. But um, all right. So. You've reached the end of the magic conversation. We just talked a little Speaking bit about magic. Speaking of not being able to sleep, which is what you said before, I couldn't sleep on Sunday. Yeah. Okay, so if you are not caught up to date on either Game of Thrones or the NBA lottery... Screw you and your NBA lottery. <laughs> you, should, you, should, you should tune out. Oh, no. <laughs> Pelicans deserve shit. <laughs> Do you think AD is going to stay now? I don't... I, he has already apparently said he's not... But <laughs> that, was, that was before they had LeBron 2.0. <laughs> Why go to old LeBron where you could have young LeBron to take under your wing? That guy well, does not know where all the good brothels are yet. They're, they're talking. Uh, I mean, the talk with AD is actually trade to the Knicks. That's that's been the discussion. I you guys were going after KD and Go Kyrie. On. They can they can they can trade for AD and still go for two maxes and I don't know. It's like some whole weird thing. This is- but um, and you're, you have what the fourth pick? With the third pick, so we get either we have the fifth pick. I think so. We have either uh, Jean Morant or um, R.J. Barrett. I don't care. It was Zion or Bust for me. I, you know, like, like people, it's so so frustrating watching like New York sports coverage. You're like, oh, and the Knicks let us down again. Or by not like, getting the first pick. Anyway, by not by not ca- you know cashing in the fourteen percenter. Like, so you, you did you really ex- you know it's like. It's like people are just so looking so looking to be negative about the Knicks, and I get it. There's a lot of reasons to be, but this is like, this is this. They put themselves in a great position this year to like clear a bunch of cap space, to be in a position to get like any one of the players they can get in the top three of the draft are players that will immediately help their team. Well, you could just land two plus superstars, right? I mean, and we can land right. And we you can, don't have a you don't have a very good supporting cast infrastructure there, right? I, I think the supporting cast is fine, especially as they move away from being starters and into supporting cast. Oh, there you go, right? right? Yeah, um, all of a sudden, when you have like Irving, Durant, and yeah. AD, who can beat that team? Right, actually? and I mean, that's not like when you had, you know, three guys who didn't play defense. Yeah. <laughs> like, each of us is scoring 90 points. Unfortunately, the opponent scored 115 <laughs> points. But don't worry. Yeah. I got the scoring title. Yeah. So there's some, there's some talk about, like, the Pelicans doing, like, the full rebuild. So the Knicks trade their three-pick to the Pelicans, and the Pelicans get the one and the three. Yeah, but that's, like, some stupid Cavs shit that never went anywhere. The Cavs didn't go anywhere until they just got their superstar back. Yeah, wow. We had the number one pick a bunch of times. Yeah. We had the one... For, I mean, Tristan I mean, Thompson's Z- actually Z- the most talented Z- player Z- that we got. Zion's a pretty big deal, but... Yeah, we got Kyrie Irving, yeah. one of the players we're talking about. Tristan Thompson, and then a bunch of other number ones. <laughs> not yeah, yeah. I, I think... So here's my, here's my t- take on the draft. If you're not getting the guy that you want, like you're not getting like the number one guy, like the Ben Simmons stud, that level of a player, it just doesn't matter because Pop is going to get you no matter what, right? Like Pop, he's he only needs like the thirteenth pick to, to mind that the three foreign all stars. Right. That's what. So I'm. It's not that I'm cynical on the draft. I actually think the draft is a super meritocracy, and that because like everyone who doesn't get the number one pick has this equal chance to actually mine the value, but the like the the most valuable players are like Giannis or um, Rudy Gobert or Kawhi Leonard or you know Tony Parker. None of those guys 
went in the top right. ten, right? right. Like, well, I mean, look, look at look at last year's draft for the Knicks. Mitchell Robinson, who I think most people agree is unbelievably unbelievable. He was a second round pick. Didn't play a day in college ball. I mean, like. I remember I went to that game. I'm like, this guy's real good. I texted you, and you're like, yeah, dummy. But the thing is, sometimes you'll talk to me about a Nick, and I'll just be like, I'm just so used to glazing my eyes over. Because the name just changes every year. Like, oh, I'm really, I'm really looking after this Derek Williams, right? <laughs> Do you remember when you guys got Derek Williams? He was the second round. He was the number two pick after Kyrie that one year. Yeah. The Cavs tried to throw, tried to trade the entire team to get so they could get, get both of them. We ended up getting both of them when you waved him, right? Yeah. So I'm just like, every year, just like, oh, this guy's real good. So I'm just like, oh, I don't believe him. Oh, wait. This guy's yeah, really, he's really good. He's really, he's he's really exciting. He's really exciting to watch. He fouls too much. Though. Yeah, that, but he's getting better at that. He's I guess learning. he's a first-year player. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he's literally didn't play college ball. Literally did not play a game of college didn't ball. play college ball. I mean, I played yeah. an intramural game. <laughs> when it was shirts versus skins, I felt a little yeah. uncomfortable. Sometimes right. we played against girls. All right, All right. let's, let's, let's. Uh, game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. So you couldn't sleep. Yeah. She broke my heart, man. Yeah, Danny. She did. She broke it. I seriously, I, I was like, my my wife like texts me. You know, you, I te- you probably text with your wife over the course of the day. Yeah. She texts me. She's like, oh, how you doing? And I'm just like, shit. She's like, why? Well, like, I didn't sleep a wink last night. She's like, why? I'm like, Danny. She fucking broke my heart, you know. And you know, some people would just be like, nut up, you loser. <laughs> my wife was like, wow, that's actually showing a great deal of emotional range for you, you know. And I was, <laughs> But so and then I, what I did was, I, and then I read all these like angry Jamie Wakefield posts. Oh, Jamie! Jamie gets super angry. Jamie and the ferret, I think, are the two angriest people in the magic community at it. I bet. So I went back and I was just like, you know what? Let me let me take a step back because I actually liked the episode. I thought two weeks ago I hated the episode. That, right. and nobody acted in a way that made any sense, right? Like. You know, super assassin already killing the white kid, the, the the white walkers. That was a good episode. Then the next episode I thought sucked. We you know like. Secret agent crossbow brawn. You know, yeah, it makes yeah. no sense, right? But this past one was a good episode, I thought. Just broke my heart on Danny. I think people are just pissed because Jamie's arc went the way it did and Cersei didn't get the justice. I like someone someone gave me the read, they're like, you gotta treat Jamie like he's an addict. Was that you? Maybe. Where it's just like, look, he's just an addict. Yes. That's he, just who he is. He's he's just an addict. He desperately wants to do all the right things and stay and, and, and hang with Brienne and you know, wash her hair and but the reality is he's just an addict and he's just going to go crawling back to his spoon. So it, that's, but I think that that's what it is. And it's also, like, you know that last scene at the end of The Usual Suspects when Gabriel Byrne is just like, tell her, tell her I tried. You know that? <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. the same thing. Right. Right, he just tell her, tell her I tried. Except and, he doesn't even say he tried. He's just like, I'm a terrible person. Yeah, but he is. He, like, so the question I asked was, at what point did he stop being the man who pushed a little boy out a window? Right, because that's really the question. I think like people are like, oh, Jamie went through this arc, and it was Tuna who back when we were reading the books, not yeah. when but shit, Tuna died before the show came out, right? Yeah. And he was just like, no, 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 that Jamie has this redemptive arc, and I was, I didn't see it. I'd read yeah, some I read. Yeah, I, I definitely like, read it that way I'm too. Like, I hate this guy. He pushed a little boy out a window. Right. He stabbed Ned in the back of him. You know, he's just like super responsible for nothing but atrocity. Right. You know, he's like the worst, and. Um, but I was like, oh, I, I totally wanted to buy into Jamie being the hero. I wanted Jamie to be the hero, right. you know? Because I thought he was going to do something heroic. And I was like, actually, his end makes sense to me. Right. And I think the fact that the, the, the viewing audience doesn't get justice is actually great. Right. Because the viewing audience doesn't get justice. 
uh, in real life, right? Right. Yeah, so, uh, but, but Danny, you said the smartest thing, right? And so. <laughs> but then the writers contradicted me in the after show. Oh, they did? They kind of do. Well, I, 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 so, I will say, so Brian said the smartest thing. I'm so, just crying about Danny. Yeah. And then you said to me what? Well, I, I don't think she was the Mad Queen. Everyone's like, oh, they've, they've, they've told this story of the Mad Queen coming for a while. And I'm like, I think she was just a cold, calculating butcher. Strategist. Yes. She said, if I don't do this, I have this nuclear bomb. Yeah. And if I aim the nuclear bomb anywhere, the despot that is opposing me is just going to gather their civilians around my, my targets. And I'm always going to be at the whim of, you know, like I'm just going to be held hostage to these civilian targets all the time. And I just need to, you know, once John kind of... But did he even reject her? He, 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 yeah, he pushed, he, he did. He rejected her. He's like... How about you and just she executed just, my friend? She, I don't feel like and, hooking up right now. <laughs> I mean, like, how about that? She, this is a man who I respect who has saved our lives numerous times. You just had a dragon eating. Well, I mean, the guy was trying to poison her. I'll get... Was trying to poison her. Yes, he was. That's why she killed him. Yes, at the beginning, with the little girl. Yeah. She comes in. She works in the kitchens. She's oh. like, she's not eating still, and he's, she's like, I think they're watching me, et cetera, et cetera. I see. I didn't. I actually didn't pick up the point. Yeah, I part. didn't pick it up at first either. I had to go back and sort of rewatch it to figure that out. Oh, I feel a little bit more remote. <laughs> yeah. He he was. That's why it wasn't just like I thought bad thoughts, and she executed him. That's right. what I thought it was. Yeah, yeah no, she, he was actively trying to poison her. Okay. Well, I didn't. I, I mean, I guess I'm a dummy. I didn't pick it up. Uh, you're not a dummy. They just told did a bad job telling that story. Okay. It is not clear. I mean, he. It's which is funny because he's responsible for her not getting poisoned in season one. Right. But anyway, so I think she just said she she was like she's she's like I'm gonna have to rule through fear. You know, instead of love, and like she thinks maybe with John, she you know, if John by her side, and she that, that she has a chance to maybe sway people and um, rule in this different way. But without John, she's just like, okay, I've got to rule through fear, and she just says, I am going to sack this entire everything. I'm just going to burn it to the ground as this message to anyone who poses me that, yeah, maybe I am the Mad Queen, but I don't think she is, I, and. So then the writers, after the show, they're like, yeah, and she's just sitting there, on it, and she's like looking at the Red Keep, and she's just getting angry, and then she just like loses it. And I'm like, what? That's, that's just way worse than what I just said. Your reading is better. But, but here's, I think it's still fine, because I think she's like, I know I'm gonna do this. And then she sits there looking at the Red Keep and like whipping herself into an anger. Like I'm still able to maintain my headcanon here. So what I, what I did was I went back and I just went through every season of Danny's behavior on the show, yeah. right? So I'll just like recount this and I'm like, not, so in other, in other universes, fantastical universes, Danny would be like, her behavior before this point, she should already be executed by whatever authority that there yeah. is. So like in the Dresden universe, for example, I don't know, you know Dresden yeah, files. Yeah. The Dresden universe, if you use magic to kill like a, a norm, the White Council comes after you. Like sure. They yeah. always kill you, right? And the, the reason is just like you cannot use magic to kill regular people, no matter what they do. Like even in self defense, it's it's very very frowned upon. Like if you do it in self defense, like you need to jump through some hoops or you you still get executed. Yeah. Right? So that's one thing. Separately, like 
I actually had an argument with like family members of mine about, end, or not Endgame, about Infinity War. The ethics of Thor using Stormbreaker against the average like Thanos soldier or whatever is incredibly excessive, right? Like it's it like we're cheering for it because like they're the invaders or whatever. Like they're monsters, oh they're terrible, or whatever. And like Stormbreaker is more terrible than anything short of the snap, right? Like he's literally like knocking planets down like at a whim, right? That is not a weapon to be used against a dude running away from. Them. <laughs> Which literally they're running away from authorities, like hurling lightning at them. Yeah. Like, I'm like this is not. This is I, this is a tough ethical question for me. The use of Stormbreaker against right. these normal invading force, right? Right. So here's the thing: in season one, what's Danny's iconic moment? When she burns herself and alive, comes out with three dragons. Do you remember what she was burning? I don't remember. She burns the body of Cal Drogo and burns alive Miri Mazdor. Do you know who Miri Mazdor is? No. She's a three-time rape victim who was raped by Cal Drogo's men. And then Danny says, hey, can you like sew him up and stuff? And he dies of wounds gone bad. And she says, hey, can you use blood magic to resurrect my dead husband? And she says, hey, it's gonna be a life for a life, right? And Danny's Childs is the life, which is pretty awful from one dimension. There's no question that that's awful, okay? Yeah. But do you remember what Danny and the and the, the Kalasar were bragging about? That her baby was going to mount the world. Right. Was literally going to rape the world. Right. That's what their yeah, objective yeah. was. So, and she's talked about burning cities to the yeah, ground. Yeah. And but this woman, seriously, she's a healer who they encounter her because the Kalasar comes in, kills all their men, and repeatedly rapes her. And then Danny burns her alive using her own superpowers, right? To like magnificently survive this, this event, okay? Like already she's like not just killed someone who was a victim, right? Right. This is almost a I mean, Fine, she, I mean, it's weird. I, I don't know about the ethics of, like, the preemption of, like, the stallion that mounts the world is a dangerous thing. Sure. Right? Maybe she's doing the entire rest of the world a favor. Killing a baby is still terrible from, certainly from Danny's perspective. Right. Right? But, I mean, certainly we have to mitigate the circumstances she's in. Danny doesn't just, she burns her alive, okay? That's it. In season two, when they go to one of those, like, cities, like, slave cities, Doria, who is Danny's handmaiden, who she's the one who's just like, hey, screw Cal Drogo like this, he'll and he'll he'll like respect you. And she's like, no, that's not the Dothraki, which is like Khaleesi. If he wanted a Dothraki bride, he would have gotten one. Right? He wants someone who'd be his equal. Do this. Do you remember that in season one? Vaguely. Doria is the one who teaches her that, right? Doria is the one who actually teaches her the lore about dragons, right? And helps her with her languages. So Doria was sold into sex slavery at age nine. So start there, right? This is this is all she knows. Danny says, "Hey, I need you to spy on these guys, right? So why don't you go seduce that guy, right? So she does, right? And so Danny's retinue is betrayed or whatever, and then you know they're rescued by whatever Jorah or whoever's there. And then Danny comes in and finds Doria in bed with the guy who she sent to seduce. What job did Danny send Doria to do?" Seduce this guy, right? Yeah. Is it surprising that she finds them in bed? No. Danny's reaction is to lock her friend in a vault to die of starvation. Um, when Barrison is killed, right? Danny's reaction is to ki- is to send the second sons, which is her boyfriend Dario Naharis, to kill every wise master. Oh yeah. That they find, right? 
And Jorah is like, there are innocent people on the other side. <laughs> like, they're like, they don't, they, it's not their fault that they were born into that right. class any more than the right. slaves are born into their class. She's like, kill them all. Right. Like, and then Jorah's like, no, you, and he stops her from that point. And then when something else bothers her, Danny gets the heads of every noble house, and she just does literally like this Chinese cultural revolution thing. Just like I'm gonna have a dragon eat you until somebody uh, eat one of you at a time until somebody confesses, <laughs> right? Like that's literally her plan. Like so, they're they end up they turn up being innocent because the one guy like sacrifices his life to save Danny from the from the incoming whatever gargoyle guys or whatever, and she's literally having her dragon snack on them. So here's the, here's the kicker, right? Do you remember how she got the Dothraki army? No. She's captured at the end of the season, and and so she runs she runs like a legal loophole. She's like, I'm a Khaleesi. You can't you can't right, rape. Her. Right, right. He's right. like, oh wait, you're right. I can't rape a Khaleesi. You're a Khaleesi. What are you doing out here? She's like, uh, bad answer, right? Okay. She's like, well, you have to be taken to the city where all the Khaleesis live, right? right. You know, for the widowed Khaleesis. Like, so. I take him to the city where all the widowed Khaleesi's are, and then you know what Danny does? She's like, I'm gonna be the Khaleesi of all y'all Khalasars. She's like, what are you talking about? And so she has Dario and, and Jorah bar the doors, and then she burns down the building that they're in. She literally commits genocide against every other, every other Dothraki noble house. She like did the Red Wedding. Yeah. She kills everyone who has noble blood in the Dothraki. So she comes out and she says, by right of conquest, you all work for me. So you're saying just worse than Cersei. She is, it's, it's worse because she uses superpowers to do it. She's either executing people by dragon or she's like doing something to leverage her, her fire invulnerability. She like literally, she literally gets every single Dothraki horse lord who, first of all, whatever, they're a terrible society, like from yeah, our perspective. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But like, but she's just like, oh, no, no, everybody come here and we're going to have a meeting about how yeah, I should have been here already. And, you know, oh, this is like a big religious slash political problem. I need to call all the Dothraki in, right? And then she's like, all right, bar the doors. We're just going to burn down the building. Everybody's going to die, right? right? Like some of those Dothraki horse lords didn't do anything right. for her, right? right? And like, but she just wanted their, right. she, she sends their a, horses. And she wants to send a message and she wants to inspire fear. <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's her way, right? And she does that. So, so I mean, like, my point is, she was never nice. And, like, even when she, like, frees the Unsullied and stuff, she's constantly dealing in bad faith. Yeah. She's saying, let's parley. I will spare you, etc." And then when she gets there, she's just like, just kidding. I'm going to have my dragons execute. She does it repeatedly. Right. Right? Like, I, mean, I don't know why right. anyone she, she actually the... doesn't obey the societal rules of the world. Ever. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. And so, like, so the thing is, like, I don't know. I don't even know why I've been cheering for her all these years. She's awful. Like, she's a, literally a mass murderer. Right. Well, it's, it's kind of one of the amazing things about that last episode uh, is that they flip your sympathies where you actually have some, you know, feeling, uh, you know, you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is how Cersei's going to go. And you feel kind of like it's a moving moment. I mean, whereas, and then you're like not rooting for Danny anymore. I hate Cersei. Okay, first of course of all, you do. Don't get me wrong. I love Lena Headey. Yeah, yes. I always have. She's always been my favorite, right? Since 300 or whatever yeah. she was in. I love Lena Headey. Or Dread. Uh, I hate Cersei. But the thing is that I've always said is that Catelyn might be worse than Cersei. And I think they're basically the well, same. How many, I mean, let me just, first of all, how many Starks have decided to take a moral stand on something and just caused innumerable deaths? 
you know, oh. you know, it was like Ned Stark, Rob Ned, Stark. Ned by incompetence, Rob by incompetence. Rob, well, Rob, Rob for true love. Well, Ned and Rob both for honor. Right, That's right. That's incompetence. Right. A lot of people uh, are relying on Caitlin. So, so here's the thing. How about how about John not throwing his aunt a bone? <laughs> I mean, Sansa from youth, right? Sure. I mean, the only ones who have. Hey, hey, hey! We won't have any bad talk about Sansa here. I said, don't make me call your wife. She made a bad decision. Yeah, yeah. But she out of youth. Yeah, and yeah. Naivete. Yeah. Like, Arya has never done that. She's just a murderer. Sure. Right. <laughs> but she just she knows who she is, right? Uh, so was your take? Speaking of Arya, was your takeaway that in the last scene that that horse was Bronn warged into the horse to go get her? I mean, I know people have heard, have read them. I don't yeah. Know. I don't think it matters. I think that I, 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 one of my friends said she thinks Arya's going to take the throne. I'm like, I don't even know how. She's clearly going to take the throne. I think, I, I think she's going to die. Really? I think she's going to die. I think she's going to kill Drogon, not really? Danny. How is she going to kill Drogon? I don't know. I don't know. But she's going to kill Drogon, not Danny. She's going to die in the process. Danny is going to remain on the throne at the end of the show at the end of the show but the throne is going to be worthless because without Drogon there's no fear She's for, she, has, she no longer has fear and like nobody pays any attention to her Sansa and Tyrion rule the north the Iron Islands go do their Iron Islands thing right whatever and then John's like later y'all I'm going to go and hang with the wildlings in the north, in was, the north, north, yeah. where it's just the only place I've ever been happy. And by the way, the closing credits are going to be me burying my face in, in ghosts in fur. Ghosts? Yeah, just like oh, ghosts. They're giving him belly not, rub, giving ghost belly rubs. That's the last scene. Maybe I was thinking something like the Stark children have not used their superpowers all season. Right. None of them. No. Well, Z had the best ending. Yeah. Z had the best ending. He's like, what I want to see, and he's like, it doesn't work. He's like, because I think Arya needs to be a Targaryen for this to work. Yeah. Is He's like, everything's over. John and John is arguing. John and 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 uh, Danny have the throne. John has and Danny goes to John and she says, "I don't want this anymore. Um, this has been a hollow victory. I don't like what this has done to me. I I give you." the Iron Throne. You are a true yeah. heir. She validates him as a Targaryen, gives him the throne, and flies off on her dragon. And then you see her pull her face off, yeah. and it's Arya, and that's the last scene. That'd be good. <laughs> so this- I also think it's possible that, we've now that we've established using Drogon as a means of execution yeah. in the last episode, that she attempts to execute Tyrion, and Drogon declines. Or, or just he doesn't get burnt. You can't be burned by... T- t- Targaryens can't be burned by Dragonfire. Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that also. I think that he's going to not kill Tyrion. So go, or, or goes to kill Tyrion or attempts to burn Tyrion and it just doesn't work. And then that validates his claim to the throne as a Targaryen. So this is what I think is going to happen. I think John and Danny both die. Okay. I don't think the show can end... With John, I think alive. I think I think it can end with John going to the North North. He can't abdicate being king of the North. He can. He can make he can make Arya. He can make Sansa. He can give it to Tyrion if Tyrion has a rightful claim. Hey, let's get Gendry up in here, and Gendry can so do it. This is what there's, I. Th- there's no shortage of rightful heirs. I think that you know because Gendry was like, "Hey, be Lady of uh, 
of Storm Island or whatever, and she's like, Nad Dog, and he's like, how about, how about Queen of the Iron Throne? And she's like, I'm, I'm going to reconsider. <laughs> I am in love with you. Right, you know? like, right, right. And so I think, I think Arya gets a happy ending with Gendry. And I think the Gendry is, on, I think Arya's on the throne because of, she's married to the king. Okay, well, that, that, that I would accept. I would accept But that. I think that. I think she's going to die, though. Yeah? Yeah. But wouldn't it be great if, like, the Starks controlled, controlled, uh, you know, with Arya on the Iron Throne and then, like, Sansa, Sansa and Tyrion. I mean, that's kind of Maybe nice. in the Riverlands. Sure. And, uh, and John is king in the north. Who, what was your, what was your Littlefinger theory? Littlefinger's alive. Right. So, is that, could that be who Varys is communicating with in his messages back and forth? I don't think so. Were okay. they friends? I think he's alive and that he, some sort of faceless man tech. Right. Because you, because you said yeah. there's a scene where he. Yeah. Yeah, so, he anyway. Goes, he goes to Bravos. Just one more episode. We'll see what they can do. You're doing John Wick tomorrow, right? I am doing John Wick tomorrow. I have a question have, for you. Yes. How many coins does it take to get a hotel room in the John Wick universe? Wasn't it like three coins, I think? Two coins? Maybe? Two or three coins. I don't know. What the fuck is a drink a coin? <laughs> you go there's like, I need a drink. Listen, man, That's like a $200 think, coin. Don't think too hard. Maybe the rest goes on your account. The change goes on your account. Really? Yeah. Just, what's the point of carrying around a coin if there's an account? Because once you're in the hotel, you have your account. Then why am I paying them for the in coins? Because you've put you're putting those on account. I don't know, man. Just think about this for a second. I understand. A drink is a coin. <laughs> Apparently, like an armory is like here's like five coins, right? <laughs> like in like a hotel. What's one of those? Hotel? Retail value on one of those hotel rooms. You walk by that real hotel sometimes, like yeah. six hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. I don't know. Listen, it ain't don't, lining don't, up with the, listen, how much a drink. Going through cost. a lot of effort to see this movie tomorrow. Don't 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 hamper. Don't uh, dampen my enthusiasm in any how way. How could I dampen your enthusiasm? It's super gas. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm super excited. Um, all right. Well, that's been another episode of Top Eight Magic. I'm Brian David Marshall. He's Michael J. Flores. And uh, we will uh, maybe see you next week after Game of Thrones. If, we, if Mike's if, not too if, sad. If we survive the game. Yeah. <laughs>